Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hello and welcome to Teen 1D, the podcast for teenagers and young adults living with type 1 diabetes. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medicine advice or treatment. Hi, well, welcome to Teen 1D, a podcast for teenagers and young adults living with type 1 diabetes. To start things off, can I just have you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Will Jeanette, and I am the new program coordinator for the College Diabetes Network. All right. So what do you do as the College Diabetes Network's coordinator? As the program coordinator, it's my job to help run our peer support networks. So specifically, that is our campus chapters. So the main thing that College Diabetes Network does is we have student-led, student-run chapters on university campuses all across the country. So it's my job to work with those students to set those up, keep them running, and uh, be a resource for them. How many chapters are there out there? Right now, we think we have about 275. We always have sort of students graduating and students starting new ones but um, the most recent count is 275 chapters. Do you know how many students are in the chapters? Like how many do you have in the largest chapter? It really depends on the campus. We have some campuses in, in Texas, for example, that just have tons of students, but the university itself is really huge. And we have some campuses where, you know, the whole campus is like 2,000 or 3,000 students. And so those chapters are obviously smaller. I would say like our average number of students in a group is somewhere between five and 10. Does the College Diabetes Network for colleges just have undergrad students? Uh, No, we have chapters that have graduate students in them as well. We think it's best for each campus to sort of decide what makes the most sense for them. So we have students with type 1 and type 2. We have students of different ages. It just sort of depends on the school. But we encourage all of our chapters to uh, do what makes the most sense for them. And for some of them, that means having grad students as well. What does CDN do for students as a part of the network? Our main thing is peer support. CDN works for the day when all young adults with diabetes are motivated and equipped to live a healthy life so they can pursue their dreams and do what they want to do. And so that is the guiding mission. And so to do that, we work with these chapters to do everything from advocate to make their campuses safer places for people with diabetes. So sometimes that means working with students to try to get a dining hall at a certain campus to put up nutrition information. Sometimes it's setting up trainings with campus administrators on how to deal with students with diabetes more effectively. But I would say the main thing that we focus on that's our pride and joy is peer support. So anybody who is type 1 and who has other friends who are type 1 knows that get talking to somebody who just gets it, it can be really, really rewarding. Um, and yes. I think that's the main thing that CDN offers to our students is just the chance to talk to somebody who gets it. Do you offer services to parents as well? We have some resources for parents. Our main sort of constituency is young adults, but we have really excellent resources like our off to college guide, which I recommend to anybody with diabetes, basically when they start high school all the way through to whether they go to college or whether they decide to go to work first. But we have an off to college guide for students. And then we have one for parents. And it's mostly the same information, but it's geared a little bit more towards 
the specific audience and their concerns, right? The biggest way our parents are involved is we have a very active parent Facebook group. So if parents search College Diabetes Network Parent Support Group, it's a very large and active community and parents post questions and answers and CDN staff will post updates for parents in there a lot. But that right now is our main way that we interact with parents. Our priority so far has been young adults. What would you say would be a normal meeting for a College Diabetes Network chapter? That's a great question. A normal meeting for a College Diabetes Network chapter is sort of going back to what I said before, whatever makes the most sense for them. So a lot of chapters will meet once a month and have like a a regular meeting where they might have maybe a guest speaker come in and talk about study abroad or drinking or other things that sort of college students uh, encounter and how to do that with diabetes. And then oftentimes other meetings that they'll do are more informal, like meet up at a dining hall and just talk kind of stuff. So it really just depends on what makes the most sense for that community at that time. But a lot of a lot of our groups really enjoy doing the informal meetups and, you know, like go out for dinner or meet up and go on a hike, that kind of stuff. I know that you were a participant in your chapter when you were in college. Can you share some of the activities that you did while being a part of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started the chapter at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, which is right outside DC. When we got started, we were a pretty small group. So we focused a lot on like the informal meetups. We'd go to the dining hall and just talk and make plans. And then slowly we started getting a couple of more members and we would meet new people. And we started deciding that what we really wanted to do was try to be active in our community. And that's what made sense for our group. And so we would have meetings to talk about planning awareness events or meetings with campus administrators to talk about diabetes. I remember we talked to the campus recreation folks and told them, you know, do your personal trainers and and students who are doing training in sports medicine want to have a seminar about diabetes? We can lead them through like coaching about how to you know deal with people who have type 1 diabetes. So that was a lot of what we did. We didn't have so many regular meetings, so to speak, but we more often would have advocacy events. And then we also got involved with some local clinics and we would do off to college events every spring. And that was our favorite event. We would have an endocrinologist, a certified diabetic educator, both of whom who had type type 1 diabetes, come to our campus. And we would bring high school students who were going to any college, not just to George Mason. And we would spend a day with them talking about all the things that cause everybody anxiety. And I know caused me anxiety when I went off to school. Also, when I was looking at the website, I saw a reference to um, CDN conferences. Is that what you're talking about then? Or are those a completely separate thing entirely? So that's actually, yeah, that's a different thing. So what we were hosting was just at our campus. The website is mentioning conferences like the uh, Children with Diabetes Friends for Life conference in Orlando or the ADCES conference and like bigger research stuff like the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions. Uh, And in a normal year, CDN has a really big presence there. We'll bring student volunteers and our staff and set up a table and we'll talk to corporate partners and conference hosts and we'll attend research sessions and talk to students and parents and clinicians and really get our name out there a lot. This year, a lot of those conferences were virtual. So CDN has not been attending any conferences in person, except with limited volunteers who may already be in the area. But our hope is that next year, when the conferences go back to in-person, that we'll be able to do that again. Yeah, that would sound great. If a college doesn't have a CDN chapter or the existing chapter is inactive, is there a way that a student can go about starting one? 
Is that an easy process to do or is it something more difficult that requires a lot of work to get started? It's a little bit of both. Um, Like I said, I started my first, I started my chapter at George Mason University. It was the first time there was one there. But the easiest and first step is just to let us know that you're interested. And the first thing that any student does when they might want to start a chapter or take over a previous chapter is reach out to me. And we set up a quick phone call. And I just sort of talk to the student and be like, what are your goals? What kind of time do you have to put into this? And how can I help you make it a reality? And we really try to make it as easy as we can and break it into really small steps. So maybe after the first call, right, there'll be one takeaway item, which is to reach out to the disability services on campus and see if they might help send out an email to let people know about the club. And maybe the next time we'll decide we want to find a faculty sponsor and maybe the next call we'll do something else. So we really try to take it one step at a time. We know that it can be overwhelming, especially going off to college. College students are really busy, but I like to think that starting a chapter is pretty easy because we are here full-time. My entire job job to help our chapters. So we're available for them whenever they need. And the reward is so worth any of the work that you have to put in for it. Now that we've discussed the College Diabetes Network, I would love to learn a little bit about you and how you transitioned to college with type one. Is that any information that you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to start things off, where are you from originally? I know you said you went to college at George Mason, but where did you live before that? So I actually grew up as a military kid, uh, moving all around the country and around the world, but mostly that was before I had diabetes. So I was actually diagnosed February of my senior year in high school. So growing up, I did not have uh, diabetes to contend with. And so I was able to live overseas pretty easily. Um, I followed my parents around the world and we came back to Northern Virginia, right outside DC, where George Mason is. And that's where I was living when I was diagnosed. I imagine it was hard to put everything together, being diagnosed as a senior right as you left for college. It was definitely an interesting time. Like I said, um, I say this all the time. I tell everybody without CDN resources, I don't know how I would have done it. It was February 3rd and I was off to college in August. And so I basically had six months, not just to learn how to be diabetic, but also to go away to college with it. And the off to college guides that I mentioned before were an incredible, incredible resource for me at that time, not only in helping me learn how to manage diabetes, but also in um, preparing that step to go off to college because they have a really good timeline of recommended steps that backs up pretty far and says, you know, maybe six months before college, you should start thinking about, you know, where you might get your supplies. And then three months before, you should start thinking about if you have a roommate, where you're going to live. And then one month before, it's time to start going to the endo and making sure you have all the supplies you need. And it sort of walks you through that. And without that timeline, I really don't know what I would have done. Okay. That sounds like a great resource that just I, me myself might have to start looking into that because I will be heading off to college um, a year from now. I'm a rising senior as I'm recording this. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. I definitely do. It's um, it's free on the website. I can send the link out so you can, um, you can have it and you can share it. But um, it's really a useful resource for anybody in college because not only is there going off to college, but there's a lot of other transitioning that's happening all at that same time where, you know, for some students, it might be the first time that they're taking real control of their diabetes management, especially if they were diagnosed younger when their parents might have taken care of them a lot as a kid or their caregivers, whomever. It can be a really difficult time for them to sort of let go and for the student to take full responsibility for ordering supplies and keeping track of everything that their parents might have helped them with. And one thing I think is really helpful with these guides is it helps start thinking about how to make that transition a little more smooth and how to think about the communication 
Because I think that that's really the, the secret to making the transition work very well is communicating really clearly between caregivers and patient, like students, patients and saying, you know, it's time for me to start doing this. I'll ask you if you need help or why don't you watch me do this and make sure I do it right. And just really transferring ownership of that diabetes experience. Some students and young adults have a lot of independence already. I know for me, we started out immediately because I was already 18 and we were like, okay, I have to do everything because you know I'm moving away already. So it's time. But I had, I had friends at the time who were saying that their parents had had a rough time kind of transferring everything over to them and they wished they had started sooner. So really the best time to start is high school. As uh, someone who's pretty independent myself, I can say, I don't think that'll be like a large issue, but I can see people who were just newly diagnosed or have had parents doing that for a while. I can see why that would be a problem once that you're on your own. Yeah. And it can be tricky. And that's why, that's why we like to say, you know, on your own, but not alone, like your parents and your caregivers can still be a really good support network and you should ask them for help if you need it. But it's just that independence that it's up to students and parents to work together to foster that and to make sure that not just are the parents comfortable giving that responsibility, but that the student or, or the young adult is ready to take that responsibility. It's a process. And that's why I tell people, you know, you don't want to start that process in June before you go to school in August, because it's, that's a really quick turnaround. Yes. And I think a lot of people naturally start it, right? Like when you kind of go off to high school, your parents maybe check in a little bit less frequently, you kind of take on more responsibility. You know, most people, I would say by their teenage years are pretty much taking care of, you know, checking their blood sugar and changing their pump sites and all that stuff. But it's the more complicated self-advocacy and working with, you know, 504 plans or ordering insurance that can be pretty tricky that I always say it's a good idea for parents and high schoolers to do that together so that they can all learn because it's ever changing and it's always more complicated than it needs to be. So what did your family think about sending you off to college after you'd just been diagnosed only a couple of months earlier? Yeah, they were, they were pretty nervous as was I. Very early on, we just kind of got together with my endo and said, you know, we're not going to let this stop the plan. Like, we're not going to defer. We're going to make it happen. So what do we need to do? And I was really lucky that my endocrinologist was on board. And she actually recommended that I go on an insulin pump before he got off to college. She said, normally, they ask students to wait about six months before they get on a pump. But she said, nope, we're going to put you on it as soon as we can. Let's put the order in. So I really think that having a doctor who was willing to listen to my needs and my wants and say, you know what, I'm going, I want to go, I'm ready to go to college. And have her say, okay, here's what we have to do to make that happen. Made both myself and my parents feel better about the situation. So feeling supported by my clinician was a big one. And I'll also say too, that I had already chosen to go to college where I was going, but my college was actually pretty close to where my parents live. It was maybe 15 or 20 miles. So okay. yeah. So I lived on campus still, but it was, I still had that support network nearby, which for me, because I was so new at being diabetic uh, at about six months or seven months in, it was helpful for me knowing. And I actually never needed them to do anything except bring me supplies that I still shipped to their address. I never needed them to come help me out with anything, but I just felt better knowing they were around. So what kind of pump did you have then? Do you still use the same one now? Yeah, I do. I used, um, I got on the T-Slim pump back. This was in 2015. And I got on that one primarily at the time because I was still making really frequent changes to my pump basal rates because I was a newly diagnosed diabetic. And, you know, when you first get into that honeymoon stage and start kind of slipping out of it, 
you have to make so many changes really, really frequently. And I, I liked that it was touchscreen and that I could understand what time I was changing and to what I was changing it. And it made me feel like I had really good control over my basal rates and understanding what was going on because it was really clearly shown to me. And then I kept that for the four years and then the T-Slim X2 pump came out and I fell in love with the basal IQ and control IQ technology. And so now, I, now I'm hooked. So how did you find out about the College Diabetes Network and then come around to founding one at your own school? I actually found out about it from my endocrinologist. She was brand new out of school. I was her first ever solo patient. Uh, so I like to say that we we started our journey together. I was her first patient. She was my first endo. And uh, we, we got to build a relationship that way. But as soon as she found out that in her pediatric endocrinology job, she was going to be seeing an 18-year-old, she said, let me do some research. And she found the College Diabetes Network and told me. And she had, uh, by the time I had my second appointment, she had the off to college guide in her hand to give me and tell me, this is your homework. I need you to read this, all of it. Yeah. So I was really lucky to find out from her. And then, like I said, I had already decided that I was going to George Mason and I saw that they didn't have a chapter. And I said, you know what? I can start this. I believe in this. This is something I can put my time towards. And so I got in touch with the College Diabetes Network and hopped on a call and they helped talk me through the process and what it would look like. And they were there for me every step of the way. How did you arrange for 504 plans in college? Yeah. So that's tricky. I had my first ever 504 meeting in like March of my senior year because I had just been diagnosed. I was, you know, made some minor tweaks to make sure I could, you know, leave the classroom if I needed to, to fix a low or to go to the bathroom or whatever. But when I, it was really when I got to college that I started understanding what the accommodations really meant and why they were necessary. And I always encourage anybody with type one diabetes to take advantage of the accommodations that are provided either by your employer, your school, your college, an amusement park, if it's available, it's there for you for a reason and you may as well use it. And so for college, I strongly encourage people to register with disability services. An important thing to know is that 504 plans do not roll over with you into college. They have their, each college has its own system. It can be fairly similar, but usually you'll reach out to the disability services or whatever they call it. Schools have different names like access services or student access center, but you reach out to the disability services office and oftentimes they'll have you set up an intake appointment and they'll really sit down with you and say, you know, what kinds of accommodations do you think make sense? And there's a huge list. And actually the College Diabetes Network Off to College Guide has a list of recommended ones that a lot of diabetics find helpful. So I definitely recommend that resource. But a lot of common ones are extra time on tests. So if you, for example, go low in the middle of a test and you have to take 10 minutes to treat a low, if you have this accommodation, it means that you're not losing that 10 minutes on a test. You can make it up after and you can still get done in time. Or flexibility and attendance is, a, is one that a lot of type 1 diabetics will have just in case you show up late. If you're in a science lab, they usually close and lock those doors right at the start of the class. And if you were late because you were changing a pump site or you had to eat or you went low during your walk to class, if you're not registered for accommodations, they can give you a zero for that day. And, but if you have the accommodations, they can let you do a makeup lab. But that's the important thing to know is that colleges are not required to do anything unless you are registered for those accommodations. It's a layer of protection for you that I highly recommend. Another really good recommendation is priority scheduling of classes. A lot of students with diabetes can get an accommodation that lets you register for your classes ahead of the general population so that you can intentionally build lunch and breaks so that you're not in back-to-back 
classes all the way through a time where you normally would eat. And that can be very, very helpful because my first ever semester when I wasn't registered for that, I had a really terrible schedule that ended up with me having to eat in class. And so having that ability to make my, make my own schedule around times that I knew I needed to be elsewhere was really, really helpful. So who did you tell about uh, your diabetes well in college? Did you tell professors, RAs, roommates? What was the situation there? I was pretty open about it because I was also trying to recruit for College Diabetes Network for my chapter. So I was telling anybody who would listen, but I know that's not everybody's everybody's story. So for me, I ma- I definitely made sure that on the first day I told my roommate, I was like, hey, just a heads up, this is what's going on. I might beep in the middle of the night. I usually wake up. If I don't, please don't hesitate to poke me, like don't suffer in silence. And I walked him through how to use the glucagon in case and just where it was and to tell him, you know, if there's ever an emergency, like just call 911. Like it shouldn't happen. It's very important if someone's going to have a roommate that the roommate knows because you don't want that roommate being surprised and not knowing what to do if there's a problem. I also made sure my RA knew. A lot of colleges have kind of restrictions on what RAs are allowed to do for a student. So the RA may not be able to necessarily administer glucagon. There may be legal complications for that, but they, if they know what's happening and they someone wakes them up and you know they can tell people what's going on and get help much faster. Professors, you don't actually have to tell them what disability you have if you're registered for accommodations. Usually they'll give you a letter and you just give that letter to the professor or you email it to them on the first day of class. And it just says the student has registered their their disability and this is the accommodations that you're required to provide them. And then if you want to tell them why, that's fine. If you don't, also fine. I usually told them because I was like, I have an insulin pump. If it looks like I'm texting, that's probably what I'm doing. I also sometimes might beep. I'll solve it. If I have to leave, that's what's going on. And I never had an issue. Professors were always very understanding. But like I said, those accommodations, technically, the professor's only required to meet them if you're registered. So it's always a good idea to have that layer of protection, even though most professors will have no problem with it at all. And then for friends, I kind of told people whenever it came up, if I went to eat with them and they saw me, you know, pull out my pump and ask what it was, I would just tell them, yeah, it's just it's an insulin pump. This is what I do. But I know some students aren't as comfortable with that. And so what we always what I always recommend is, you know, people who must know are like your roommate. It's really a good idea to tell your RA. Outside of that, it's fully up to you. But, you know, those are two people who I think it's really important if you're going to live on campus or live with a roommate anywhere. That person should probably know what's going on. Are there any things that you wish you would have done differently while in college with dealing with diabetes? Oh, definitely. I wish I had gotten on a CGM sooner. My first year, I was using a pump, but I was still checking my blood sugar with finger sticks because I was like, I have to wear this pump site. I don't want an even bigger one. Like the Dexcom looked huge to me and I didn't, I didn't want to wear another site. And so finally my, my endocrinologist made me do like a, like a 14 day trial. Um, and I instantly fell in love with the data and I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't do this sooner. Like I can never go back. So I do wish I had been on a CGM, even if I had been on a CGM and injections, I still think I would have had a better control because college is it's like everything that's hard for people with diabetes to manage all at the same time. You have minimal routine, minimal sleep, crazy amounts of activity all the time, crazy food that it's hard to understand and hard to control, especially if you're eating at a dining hall, unlimited food at most dining halls. So it sort of is like a perfect storm when, uh, when you go off to college. And so if I had had a CGM, I would have known a lot more about what was going on. And I think I would have had a lot better health and control that first year. What did you major in while in college too, just while we're on that note? 
So my major in college was conflict analysis and resolution. Um, I actually, and my minor was in Russian. So I actually studied like political science and psychology and sociology and all these different subjects kind of rolled into one. And then I also read that you have a master's degree as well. Could you tell us about that? Yes. The master's is actually in the same thing. It's in conflict analysis and resolution. I was able to do a, um, a dual degree program. So yeah. it, it was like five years and I got the bachelor's and the master's in five years. And while also doing some research for this, I've read that you enjoyed traveling. Could you tell us a little bit about where you've been? Yeah. So growing up, like I said, I lived kind of all over the world. So I lived in Lithuania, which is in Eastern Europe and in Turkmenistan, which is in Central Asia. And my family got to do a lot of traveling from there. And I got to see a lot of different places in Europe that I'd always wanted to go to. And I just kind of fell in love with it from a young age. And so since then, and since being diagnosed with diabetes, I've gone to Germany, I've gone back to Lithuania, I've been to Ukraine, I've been to Honduras, and I've really started learning how to manage diabetes through time zone changes and different kinds of food and all that kind of stuff. And I, I really just love getting, getting to see a new place. Like my favorite place to go is somewhere I've never been before. Has type one changed your travel in any way? Like, is there now a country that you're now not really wanting to go to just because inadequate medical care there? I've definitely thought, yeah, it's definitely occurred to me that there are places that would be more difficult to travel to. The way I look at it is I can carry enough supplies on my body for 15, 20, 30 days. So that's how long I'm willing to go somewhere. You obviously can't ever predict emergencies. So it's definitely still a bit of a risk. Yeah, I definitely feel like if I want to go somewhere, I can come up with a way to make it work. And I just have to, you know, kind of like everything with diabetes, you can still do it. It just might be a little bit harder than most people. So for me, travel is the same way. I have to pack a lot more. Like my friends will be like, oh, I packed in this cute little backpack. And I'm like, nope, I have three weeks of pump supplies and insulin and juice boxes and Snickers and then my clothes. So I packed in this roll behind you bag. So it's definitely had some impacts like that where it's kind of annoying. And then also time zone changes are, are a struggle for blood sugars. Like your body has absolutely no idea what's going on anyway, and then add diabetes to that. But I honestly just, I just enjoy traveling enough that I kind of, I, I give myself a little bit of a wider target range when I travel. I'm like, you know what, if I run at like 180 for a week, it's just a week. It'll be okay. You know what I mean? Have you ever had to seek medical care in a foreign country? Not for diabetes specifically. No, I've been really lucky. All right. I think that we're getting to the end here. Okay. Um, is there any unusual things that you've been asked about type one in your experiences in college or just outside in general? Oh, definitely. I'm trying to think of a good example right now. I think there's a lot of the common misunderstandings that people just sort of don't know about diabetes. Uh, a lot of, can you eat that at the dining hall? A lot of that. Yeah. People who kind of aren't aware that you can like unplug your insulin pump if you want to go swimming or take a shower. They're like, wait, you can take that off? You're like, well, I mean, yes. Does it look like, does this touchscreen item look like something you would take in the shower? Like, where, what am I going to put it on or in? Like, I don't have pockets in the shower. So kind of stuff like that, just like the everyday stuff. But you have to kind of, you know, take it day by day and just slowly educate your community. And in the end, like if your close friends know enough not to bother you, like it is what it is. Someone will always have something to say. But as long as the people you spend the most time with know what's up, to me, that's sort of is the, that's the priority. What's the best general advice that someone has given you about living on your own or with a roommate in college? 
communication, definitely communication. I learned this through my through my academic studies as a as an expert in conflict resolution. Communication is key. Communicate with your parents. Communicate with your roommate. If something's bothering you, if you don't say it right away, the angrier you'll get, and the less rational you'll be when you finally do decide to say something. And most people don't mind having a conversation about it if it's you know, say your roommate's playing loud music, like talk about that on day one, just be like, Hey, like, I just sort of am more of like a going to bed kind of guy. Like, I don't love having loud music on at this hour. Like, is that fine? And they'll be like, sure, why not? So just communicate your needs and set your boundaries and be clear about them. I think it can be hard for people to learn that skill, but it's so, so valuable in the end. Do you have any general advice about choosing a college or selecting a major? Uh, my general advice would be, well, this isn't really general advice. This is still advice for people with type 1 diabetes, I guess. Don't pick your college because of diabetes. Go where you want to go and figure out how to adapt later. Go, And this this is where it turns into general advice. I think people should go where they feel like they're going to be at home. And like, if that's really far away, it's okay. We'll figure it out, right? But I just, I would hate for anybody to pick a school that they didn't think they were going to love. So keep looking around until you find one you love. Um, since there's more to everyone with type one than just type one, what are some other things that you enjoy doing or what are some shows that you enjoy watching on a streaming service or just on TV in general? I love that question. Um, I really like to cook. I think it's fun. I got really into it during quarantine when I didn't have much else to do. And I had all day, I would start cooking like beef bourguignon for like four hours, or I would, I would learn how to, you know, roast chicken in a cast iron skillet because I had 40 minutes and like, why not? (laughs) Um, So I've gotten really into cooking and trying new recipes and just seeing what's out, what's out there. And right now I'm binging Downton Abbey. I had never had a chance to watch it because it was always on when I was sort of living overseas and it was hard to get access to, but they put it on Netflix. So I've been watching Downton Abbey. Are there any events that you've planned for this summer that you'd recommend to people doing or going to participate in? CDN is doing a chapter leader summer social for students who are thinking about starting a chapter in a chapter or leading a chapter of College Diabetes Network in August. So that's really been my main focus. It's obviously not like an event for everybody, but I think that we're going to start having more community events. And I know that there's also some good off to college events that are coming up. We did a recent one on Facebook Live with JDRF. So any students who are thinking about or starting to think about college, if they go to the College Diabetes Network Facebook page, they'll see uh, the recorded video of that. It's about 40 minutes. And it was a really good session. And we're hopefully going to do some more stuff like that, like information stuff coming up to talk about more, more things that we know our groups are interested in. Perfect. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to add? Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, I think we're right. good. Then thank you, Will, for being here. And thank you to everyone for listening as we end up this episode of Teen 1D. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm now closing out. See you next time. Bye. That's all for today. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests or just want to say hi, don't hesitate to reach out. You can email me at teen.t1d at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram at teen1dpodcast. If you like my podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review as it does really help me out. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to tune into next week's episode. Have a great week. Bye.